This is In Sickness. I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. So should we talk about plague? We should probably talk about plague. We're going to be probably a hot mess. And I think by now everyone's probably okay I'm with that. I'm comfortable with that as well. <laughs> Great. And why might we be talking about the plague? One might ask. Surely they might think. <laughs> Do you like this <laughs> intro that I wrote? Surely I they may think it. that only Angeliki will have something to discuss as the Black Plague ended in like the 12th century, although For, Angeliki has century. corrected me. <laughs> You're about to get another disease to be worried about, dear listener. So yes, we do still get the plague in the 21st century. No, not COVID-19, literally the plague. Um, and it is a bacteria-based disease, and it comes from a bacteria called Yersinia pestis which is a wonderful name as the bacteria largely lives in things that we would consider to be pests. Although, of course, it is not actually what it means in Latin. In Latin, pestis means disease or plague, which I think is a super lovely piece of etymology. So pestis or pest specifically meant plague. Like those two were synonymous. And I feel like we are all familiar with the phrase, a plague upon your houses. Well, in 1550 or so, it actually was a pest upon your house. And then that became adapted to mean something detrimental to humans or things human use. So something that negatively affects crops would be called a pest. Then from there, it got adopted to essentially mean anything that's an annoyance. And I am slightly traumatized to have learned this fact because my mother affectionately calls me a pest and I have adopted that same tendency. So sorry to everyone. I have accidentally called a plague bacteria. That's on me. I forgive you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> this bacteria mainly lives on rodents and their own personal pests, fleas. Um, so the fleas carry it through their bite to another mammal. So that could be a dog or a cat or, of course, a human. And one very visceral description I, let, I read of how this happens is basically the bacteria causes sort of like a block in the digestive system of the flea. And then when they bite something else, they basically just puke up the bacteria as they're biting. And that's how it gets into the mammal. People can also get infected by touching an animal or an open sore from someone that had the disease, and then that could contaminate their skin, or they could accidentally ingest it. Um, but person-to-person -person transmission is quite rare and often an indication that the disease is very serious. Um, so often, epidemics started because all the rats would drop dead from the plague bacteria, and then the fleas would move on to humans because they needed a place to live, but also the humans would pick up and dispose of all the gross rat carcasses. So that's like twofold exposure. In this animal form, like living in fleas and mammals, the plague is found everywhere in the world besides Oceania. And for humans, it's only a risk where plague, natural foci, and humans coexist. For the plague, natural foci essentially means a place where the bacteria itself, a living host where the disease can survive, and a vector, like the flea, are all in the same spot. And that spot is near a human. So the bacteria is in the rat, which has the vector of the flea, which jumps to the human being. Since the 90s, the place where the natural foci and humans coexist the most 
is in Africa. You will notice that we have not started out by just saying the bubonic plague. Um, so there are two-ish, three forms of plague. <laughs> Super precise. We're here to give you the facts. Only the facts. We are highly informed. I say two-ish or three-ish because there are complications and those complications form a different kind of plague. So bubonic, you know the name, you love to hear it, but what is it? Well, bubonic plague is the most common form of the plague and you basically get it from the bite of a flea. The plague bacteria attack your lymph nodes, which is the part of the body that filters out bad substances and like helps you prevent infections. So it's like when you get a cold, for example, you can feel the little nodes in your neck getting all swollen. The node becomes inflamed and that's called a bubo, I would assume. Not 100% on the pronunciation. Yeah, it's meant to be called a bubo and traditionally it's it's like a, a hard black spot slash lump that's either on your throat or under the armpits or in the groin. Exactly that. So that then gets all pussy and it becomes a sore. And if you're infected with this type of plague, you're likely to experience alongside these nice sores, fever, diarrhea, abdominal pains, and vomiting, which is also just a really another fun example of how that's every illness ever. So good luck convincing yourself you have the plague next time you get a cold. Okay. So as I said, human to human transmission of bubonic plague is quite rare. And this form can be treated if it's caught early. It's so like first three to five days, but it does have like a 30 to 60% case fatality rate at the worst of times. So it can be very dangerous. When bubonic plague has complications, these complications might be the first sign that we can see as an outside observer that someone has the plague. So basically they won't show those typical symptoms that were just described and the disease will get worse and worse before it starts to show that it's there. So you kind of get this continuation of bubonic that can be categorized as its own type. And that's called septicemic plague. Um, and aside from the other symptoms that are essentially the same as bubonic, you can also get bruises and bleeding on your organs. Sometimes your extremities turn black and die. And because it's more likely to be further along in its infection, it's harder to treat and the infected person is more likely to die than if it was just bubonic. And then finally, there's pneumonic plague or lung-based plague. And that's by far the most infectious and dangerous. And while it is rarer in humans, it comes on in more than one way. So first, if you survive those first two bad forms of plague, but you don't get treated, it just turns into pneumonic plague, which is even more serious. Or if someone else does have it, it can be transmitted person to person. So again, person to person is much rarer, but when it does happen, it's much worse. The incubation time is only 24 hours, which is nothing. And if you don't catch it early, like within the first 24 hours of symptom onset, it is 100% fatal. So that's a really small window to identify that you have a serious version of the plague and get the right treatment. So because that one's more oriented in the lungs, the symptoms are more along the lines of like coughing, bloody sputum. So you're actually less likely to get adequate treatment uh, just by identifying your own symptoms than you are by, for example, contact tracing. Yeah, with this specific kind of plague, with the worst one, it's so much better to just know that someone else had it and then get treated. Okay, so the number one thing with treating, preventing 
plague. This is really helpful medical advice. The number one thing with the plague and arguably all diseases is to just try to not get it. (laughs) You're welcome, everyone. (laughs) That's super helpful. I'll get right on that. But specifically avoid flea bites, right? Like that, And that is something that you can try and do. This is why when you travel, people say don't touch stray animals. Ideally, don't pick up dead rats, although I'm sure most people weren't planning on it. Um, if you do get bitten by a flea, you need to be diagnosed in a lab test. There are RDTs or rapid diagnostic tests that can be done in just 15 minutes, like at your bedside, but only if you are symptomatic. So if you're not showing those symptoms yet, it wouldn't diagnose you with plague. Once you're diagnosed, treatment should be like immediate because if done quickly enough, there's a 90% survival rate compared with a 70% fatality rate if you're not. And like I said, almost 100% fatality for the pneumonic plague. And the treatment is just antibiotics because it's a bacterial disease and it's very successful. There has been some discussion of multidrug resistant plague, um, but I will talk briefly about that later. And there is a vaccine that has been invented. That's so cool. I didn't know that. Yeah. But since there are only about 600 cases a year, it's not a routine vaccination and only people who are really high risk receive it. Um, And that's namely just people who are working in labs with the plague. And I think that's an interesting point that we'll come back to because there is still plague in the world and there are some areas where it's endemic. And so I do have some thoughts and or concerns about why this might not be more available. But uh, we'll come back to it after we talk about the history. Thank you very much. That was a wonderful introduction. (laughs) So today... I'm going to be giving you some general info about the history of plague in humans, and then I'll talk about arguably the most famous outbreak of plague or any disease that anyone has ever talked about, uh, the Black Death. When we were first starting out, we asked my mother, the historian, what is your favorite disease? And she immediately wrote back and said, The Black Death. Yes. (laughs) Your mom has always been and will continue to be my role model. (laughs) I'm one of my favorite people ever, and you can quote me on that. And she's so right. It's a great disease. Not that that the Black Death is great, but it is... It's fascinating, and I think that's partly because it's one of the most studied and uh, the best-remembered epidemics ever. And that's actually really rare with the stuff that we normally talk about. Like, I'm always complaining that there's a lack of sources, people haven't done it right. I'm actually drowning in sources with the Black Death, because (laughs) it's one of those diseases that historians have been uh, curious about forever. And especially from, like, an economic history and a social history point of view, people are so interested in what the Black Death did to uh, the demography of medieval Europe specifically and what it did to feudal structures and what it did to the fabric of society as a whole. And I will talk a little bit more about that and what I think is the most interesting thing about Black Death. But first, I want to talk about the three cycles or pandemics of plague. So the first one happens from the 6th to the 8th centuries in the Greco-Roman world, So in 542, you have what's called the Plague of Justinian, and this devastates Constantinople um, and continues to circulate in the Mediterranean for about 200 years. So you have like successive waves of plague. And then you have the second cycle, uh, which 
is from the 14th century up until the beginning of the 19th century, which is huge. That's That's 500 years years of plague. And this is the time that we get the Black Death and it just like keeps going. And it devastates the Middle East, North Africa, Europe, and Asia. And then the third cycle of plague, which I just learned about uh, a couple days ago, is from 1855 to 1959, roughly. 1894 in Asia, it pops up and then uh, it infects the rest of the world. And 1894 is when uh, Uracin manages to grow Uracina pestis in laboratory, hence the name. It caused 15 million deaths. I didn't know that and it's so recent and it's so bad and yeah, it's a huge bummer. So I thought we could focus on the Black Death because it's a particular case which we recognize as something that had a significant impact on our society and that continues to have a significant impact on our society and it's legendary. On top of all the contemporary literature that was produced about the plague and I'm actually rereading the Decameron and I will talk about that in my hoorays because it's great. We continue to see portrayals of plague in books, movies, etc. today. So I'm thinking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Bring Out Your Dead. Such a classic. I watched it not too long ago. It's so good. It's also pretty critical because of the widespread panic it caused. Mm, Panic. Responses to the disease. We love panic. Uh, There's lots of rumor of poisoning as well, which I'm going to get to. And it has explicit links with trade. And obviously, uh, people are obsessed with studying the demographic and social effects. Um, And most importantly, after the Black Death, the world had completely changed for a variety of reasons. Um, So first, we're going to talk about the spread of the disease and its links with trade and empire. So the Black Death started in the Kipchak Khanate of the Golden Horde in the western part of the Mongol Empire. So for those of you who are new to the Mongols, um, (laughs) as most of us will be today... So for those of you who haven't really heard of the Mongols, uh, they're a major power in the medieval world, most famously uh, with the campaigns of Genghis Khan. So this is like the westernmost part of Genghis Khan's empire, which he leaves to one of his sons, and that's called the the Golden Horde. And at the height of its power, the territory extends from the Carpathian Mountains to the Siberian Steppes. So that's huge. And they actually sack Kiev in 1240 and nearly invade Western Europe, except they decide to turn back east. Don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it's as a result of some sort of dynastic challenge that uh, the general had to go back for. And there's actually a really good episode of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History about the Mongols, and this is called Step Stories. It's not very long, and uh, it's just him nerding out about the Mongols, which we like. So yeah, it gives a good intro to who they are and why they're interesting, and I would recommend it. The Black Death, when it hits this society in 1346-1347 marks the beginning of the end for the Golden Horde in Europe, and it turns the tide in favor of the Russians in this imperial expanse. So the Golden Horde trade extensively with the Mediterranean, and in particular with Genoa and Mamluk, Egypt. So you see where I'm going with this from a plague Mm -hmm. perspective. (laughs) Although the bubonic plague is an epizootic, so we talked about this word in the anthrax episode, spread by animals, It was actually humans who carried the fleas and rats along the trade routes, which is why it spread so quickly. Uh, So the plague heads west towards the Crimea in 1346-1347, and it enters Constantinople. It gets to Egypt in 1347, and it heads up the Nile. By 1348, it's in the eastern Mediterranean, Palestine, Baghdad, 
Simultaneously, it's spreading west and into Italy by Genoese ships, and it's in Spain, Paris, and southern English ports by 1348. By 1349, the rest of France and England, the Low Countries, Norway, southern Germany are all suffering from plague. And in 1350, you have the rest of Germany, Sweden, the Baltic, northern Poland, and eventually it gets to Russia in 1353. And that is so fast yeah it's like, really given fast given how slow travel <laughs> in general was that's crazy. yeah so alongside all of the trade caravans that are going around it's not just mainland trading it's trading by ship which is part of why it spreads so quickly it's once again same thing we always talk about it's traveling by these well-defined uh maritime systems of exchange and in each place, the epidemic can rage for about five to six months. Obviously, this varies, but normally five to six months before dying down. Um, and in every case, the effects of it are really profound. Uh, one aspect of these effects are the panic that is caused by the plague even before it arrives. So even before the Black Death arrives, people freak out. So again, common theme in our podcast, but in Europe, unlike in, uh, in Muslim societies, the coming of the plague was seen as something that was morally charged. It was a punishment visited by God on the people for their sin and corruption. And it was even seen as a sign of the end of days. People really thought it was the apocalypse and that the world was ending. So responses to the Black Death included pogroms, public displays of devotion. This is when flagellation becomes a thing and people just flee. It's not recommended, but they do it anyway. So first, the pogroms because it totally changes it totally changes where jews are building their communities so there are rumors that are circulated that the jews were responsible for the plague and these are rumors that many people will be familiar with as like the poisoning of wells the sacrificing of christian babies that kind of thing from 1348 to 1349 hundreds of jewish communities were displaced and destroyed there was like popular outcry and a series of like it extremely violent acts perpetrated against Jewish communities. So people would be exiled, they would be tortured, sometimes whole communities would be burned alive. It was really bad. Basically from this moment on, like pogroms weren't new. What was new was the unprecedented violence and the widespread nature of it as well. It was all across Europe. And it totally changed where people were settling. And from that point on, Jews would mostly settle in Eastern Europe. And that didn't last many more years after that, did it? <laughs> yep. Yep, yep, yep. And the Jews weren't alone either. So before before this point, people were also blaming lepers. There was scapegoating against like any sort of other in the community who was seen to be infecting others with sin and bringing down disaster. So it's not a new thing, but it's still really bad. Another one of the responses, flagellation. So that's public demonstrations of penance where the faithful would like whip themselves in public in order to like purge themselves of sin. You also had personal acts of charity, alms for the poor. Like that's the negative. On the positive side, people were really thinking about the state of their souls and trying to give back to the community and also uh, investing a lot in religious art and in the building of churches so there's this like weird response to the plague in a lot of europe in the years afterwards people randomly like their communities have been devastated 30 to 60 percent of their population is gone everyone knows someone who has died and their response is to start building churches and cathedrals at an unprecedented rate so the poor 
obviously, as always, priests and doctors were disproportionately affected by the Black Death because these are the people who had the most contact with the sick. So the poor, because of crowded conditions um, and problems with sanitation, priests, because they were visiting bedsides and holding confessions and mass and attending burials, and then doctors, obviously. Black Death had a 30 to 50% mortality in Europe and the Middle East, but it's actually impossible to be sure with existing sources, and there's a lot of variation uh, locally. So some communities were barely affected, for example, Nuremberg, and some uh, communities, particularly in Italy and Provence and Ireland, really hard hit saw uh, 90% mortality rates in some communities, which is insane and probably indicative of mnemonic plague, actually. And what you start to see as a, re as a response to the Black Death are some of the first steps towards public health infrastructure. So you're seeing unprecedented efforts to isolate the sick, the sick and halt the spread of disease. So because, according to their Greco-Roman traditions and current medical knowledge, they were believers in miasma theory, we love miasma. Yeah, so Italian governments legislated to uh, limit the operations of industries whose activities were smelly because apparent because they thought that was the cause of the disease. They thought it was like noxious air, which is brutal because everything smelled bad. Yes, precisely. But in particular, <laughs> stuff like tanneries and butchers and dyeing stuff like that 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 will like stink up a whole neighborhood and some other measures that they would have put in place is like the washing of streets the washing down of houses uh like scented things everywhere they legislated against public assembly and they confined the sick which sounds super familiar uh, and they appointed public health boards to oversee the response to the crisis so the measures are unprecedented but they're actually really hard to enforce so in a lot of cases they're not very effective with the exception of milan randomly so as I said earlier, historians love to talk about the economic impacts of plague on the peasantry, like in terms of wages, etc. And I actually had a prof at McGill who had us discuss the Black Death as a Malthusian crisis as like an exercise. That was <laughs> that was pretty great. I would stress that that's actually not the most interesting thing about the plague. I think the most interesting thing about the plague is that because of its demographic impacts, because of who it was killing, it affected the infrastructure of society and mainly public services, which were dependent on the church. Mm. So if you take the example of priests, priests in medieval society are often the primary educators. They're resources for pastoral care, and they also perform the function of local leadership. They're the person you turn to when stuff goes wrong. Uh, and I actually once read an article arguing that when the most active involved priests were disproportionately affected by the Black Death, it totally changed the face of the church. So all of the best educated, mm. all the bravest, all the most fervent priests died <laughs> in the Black Death because they were putting themselves in harm's way and not staying away from people. And the people who were left to uh, run the church were those who had actually been less willing to help out, the people who... <laughs> stayed out of harm's way and it's like a, a totally different kind of clergy which survives and takes over the church which probably affected a lot of decisions that were taken in the uh years afterwards i feel like it has merit like I yeah like it absolutely does to to end we we normally talk about whether uh there are like major things or events stemming from this disease and yes <laughs> there are so many i cannot <laughs> choose <laughs> what are the socio <laughs> economic 
important impacts of the disease. It's there's so many. The plague after the Black Death, it continues to hit in successive waves, as we talked about, for like 500 years. And to this day, it occupies a special place in our Western culture, and it generates a healthy historical literature, which we can get behind always. (laughs) It's a really fun thing to study because it's all about medieval globalization, if we can even call it that. It makes you think about how interconnected the world was even in the 14th century before we even consider that it's possible from our modern perspective. Um, It's a hub of dynamic networks and through something like plague we can really pay attention to groups which are sometimes overlooked in our discussions of history like the Mongols or in later epidemics the Ottoman Empire. I think that's such a good point and one that we've talked about in other instances about how like changing and growing globalization changed the way disease spread. And like as often as we hit new peaks, we see spreads of disease, right? Like when we talked about Spanish flu, that was following a change in how the world was connected at the end of world war one. And right. Like there's a, there's many examples of how transport and trade and connections spread disease alongside all of these other things. Mm -hmm. I should ask my mom, One of the things that she studies that I think is so interesting is how you can follow the way cultures traded with each other along this like very famous trade route, the Silk Road, coming from China, through Russia, through Central Asia, and then all the way out the other side. And you get all these random things like Vikings wearing silk that said Allah Akbar because they just thought it was a pretty design. Or... And then, like, you find that off in Iceland somewhere, you know? Yeah. Or dumplings and how dumplings change across (laughs) Europe. There is physical evidence that these cultures were coming into contact with each other Mm -hmm. from really far away. And it's just beyond our imagination. But if you look at it in the context of, of plague or other diseases you start to realize that these people, even if they're in the 14th century, are, we recognize them. Like they're reacting in ways that we recognize and perhaps don't agree with. And uh, it really shows us how quickly objects and people and information and ideas are traveling across these networks. It's all about connection. Yeah, I think we're given a narrative of like very segregated societies. Yeah, uh, like this is that culture and this is that culture and that remains yeah. that way until we had boats and trains and cars. And well, frankly, I mean, frankly, it's a colonial narrative, right? Until colonialism started, we, these cultures were isolated and they didn't talk to each yeah. other and they didn't grow and they didn't do these things. Like disease is just one of the things. Like they gave each other plague, but, you know, they gave it because they were giving them these other things. I mean, that were it's good a colonial narrative. It's uh, it's a modernity narrative, but it's also partly one of the pitfalls of how history has been done and how history has been taught. Like part of mm-hmm. part of what makes um, history a good tool, but also one of the drawbacks is that you tend to compartmentalize things into these tiny little boxes to make them easier to study. But the danger there is that you lose sight of the of the bigger picture, and in this case, the global context. When you're in school and you're in class and you're learning about the Black Death, you're not learning about the Black Death as a whole. You're learning about the Black Death as a part of medieval English society or some other such mm-hmm. like really specific thing. And then they'll show you the woodcuts of uh, Al- Albert Dürer's uh, depictions of plague and the apocalypse and that'll be it. 
but it totally neglects to get into where the plague came from, what it means that it spreads so extensively, and like the imp- the, the like broader implications beyond the borders of this tiny thing that you're studying. I mean, yeah, we just don't learn about it that way, and I wish that we did. I mean, I think it's changing now. It is getting better. Yeah. Um, because there's more demand for that. Like, yeah. But we've, it's we've just We've changed so... the way that we consume history. That is very true. But it, it, it is just so ingrained. Like, I'm just now thinking about all of these different ways in which I see that reflected in everyday life. We've created these boundaries and, like, spatial locations for cultures but it's not, those are arbitrary. They don't, they don't mean anything. Mm -hmm. Like if you didn't have a sign and you were standing on the border between the U S and Canada, you wouldn't know. Of course, disease transcends these boundaries that we put Mm -hmm. out because they're not real. (laughs) I mean, the good news is that once you start to pick apart that narrative and you start to think about it, um, the, the illusion of neat categories and, uh, categories and boxes uh that signify difference that starts to really fade away quite quickly and it's a slippery slope once you start to think about particularly history in those terms or rather once you stop thinking about history as something that is bordered and i think disease is such a good frame of reference for that because of course it doesn't it's never mattered for disease Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. disease doesn't care what language you speak doesn't care where you live Unless it can't survive in the cold or something, in which case I guess it does, but it's still irrelevant. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's that's why I started studying disease initially, you know, like I was looking for a way to reframe some of the problems I was thinking about. So I thought, okay, what's a thing that's common to all of these supposedly different (laughs) contexts uh, that I can talk about and make people think differently about X, Y, Z? And I was like, disease, obviously. It's an environmental factor. It's uh, an intellectual idea. It's something that provokes really strong emotions. And it's something that doesn't respect our imposed boundaries or frames of reference in any way, whether those are physical or psychological. And I always thought that was super cool. It is. It is. It's a great reason. I'm with you. Let's talk about the modern day. So as I mentioned at the beginning, contrary to what we would like to believe, or maybe I'm, I might be using the royal we here. I personally think of plague as a thing of the past, but it is not at all. Although, of course, it isn't nearly as severe or as much of a death sentence as it was. So it, it just hasn't really been eliminated. It lives in basically animal reservoirs. So like places where enough animals live close together that the bacterium can sort of hop from one to the other. Um, but these can transfer to humans through bites or touch. I wrote very helpfully, no snow white action here, folks. Aww. If you don't really know, I mean, you shouldn't try and touch wild animals. Anyway, <laughs> but like, I don't think she ever really you, touches them except for the, the like bird that lands on her hand. Right. Yeah. But they like make her bed. I'm just saying if you True. have, fleas. okay. All right. All right. I take your point completely. <laughs> I should know better. I did dress up as snow white for Halloween this year. Just the small animals are cute and they're fluffy, but they might also have fleas and you never know. And it can be found in a lot of rodents. It's not just rats. You can find them in gophers, prairie dogs, squirrels, chipmunks, the like. Because these days, if it's caught soon, the antibiotics are quite effective. It 
is more likely to be fatal in places where there is low access to health care and rapid health services. So yes, around 2017, there was an outbreak in New Mexico, but it was contained really, really quickly because it was identified and treated and dealt with quite quickly. But it can also be found in South America and Africa and Asia and Mongolia specifically. And in often cases in those places, it's much harder to identify and it's much harder to access the appropriate treatment as quickly. So a few specific examples. There have been quite a few outbreaks in the Democratic Republic of Congo and it's sort of in that central Western Africa area. One of the more recent epidemics was in Madagascar. So the thing about Madagascar is that it's actually endemic to the country. So there, there is actually a plague season from October to April where it makes a resurgence. And there's typically about, I think, 600 cases a year. So it's like, it's like spring, summer, early fall. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Opposite hemisphere. So in 2017... In urban areas, there was a plague outbreak, and it was spreading from person to person, which, as we discussed, is very rare, but also indicative of it being one of the most dangerous forms of the plague. And then from and the first patient zero was a guy on a minibus. And for those of you who have never traveled in sub-Saharan Africa, there's these sort of like taxi minibuses, and they've got like 12 seats, and you pack about 50 people into them. So it's really, really close quarters. And so this guy got sick and then it's really hard to do that kind of contact tracing. So more people started to get sick and then they started to go out to rural areas and then it spread to places with less access to care. Scientists also discovered during that outbreak that there were several new strains of the plague, which made it harder to identify and harder to treat. So over the course of this specific year in 2017, where everything was just going horribly, (laughs) there were over 2000 infections and 171 deaths. Um, so I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just strains of plague. I know there's just it's too much. It's like one was a disaster. Enough. Yeah. So again, because it's endemic in the country, there is like this expectation that it's going to pop up. But they are learning to control it slightly better because that year was just so bad. Right? Like it's, it went so fast, and they just sort of had to like shut everything down and do like door to door contact tracing that they realized they needed to, to do more about it. So they did start to allocate more funding towards things like isolation services, contact tracing, treatment, and that seems to be helping. But Madagascar is not a very wealthy country, um, so that makes the whole gamut much harder. And the thing that became an issue both for this and both for the plague and now is that there is a certain amount of reliance on tourism. And it's an island, right? So if something gets in it, and that's why it's endemic there, is because if something gets on the island and gets a foothold, it's really hard to eliminate it. And there was a real big fear over tourists coming in and out of Madagascar because they obviously didn't want to get the plague, so that hurt the economy. Um, They didn't want people, they would cancel flights, which also hurts the economy because it's an island, right? So there's a lot of things, like you said, a lot of socioeconomic factors that tie into plague outbreaks even now. And so obviously they have developed new strategies, but more research, more education in the community, all those things would be good. But I'm just sort of glancing over this because I just wanted to do a mini, instead of talking about like a couple of the epidemics that have happened over the last decade or so, I wanted to do like a mini dive into one quick story about a modern day case. 
And I wanted to do that for two reasons. One is because most of the stories of the plague epidemics now are kind of the same, right? Like people got infected from some form of wildlife. Some people got sick. Most got treated. And it's unfortunate, but it's also not a very good story. But also... I always want to think of like a fun, cute story to do. And then I remember that we're doing deathly diseases and then it's never funny <laughs> or cute. Fun, cute story about plague. Exactly. Casually. And so but you managed to find something that's amazing. I did. And so I'm going to do this one story that I find very endearing, um, but also makes it clear how like wrong place, wrong time. You can fully just get the plague now. So in the United States. The most cases of plague that occur happen on the southern western coast. So, like, there are actually cases in L.A. County, New Mexico, like, the, all that kind of stuff. And in 2012, there were a few cases popping up across Colorado. And there was one that was relatively well publicized because it was a seven-year-old girl who got the plague. And her name was Sierra Jane Downing. Also, I think it's adorable that a girl from Colorado is named Sierra. Anyway. Sierra and her family went camping in August of 2012. They had a lovely time. Everything was great. And then five days later, Sierra's parents found her in their bathroom having a seizure and blacked out and barely breathing. So she was immediately taken to the doctor. But over the next 12 hours, her condition started to worsen because no one could figure out what was wrong with her. They checked all the normal sources for all of these symptoms and nobody could identify what was happening. She started going into septic shock, so she went to the ICU, like her condition was really worsening. And then in what I imagine to essentially be like an episode of Doctor House, one of the doctors noticed a really swollen lymph node on her leg and noticed that there were all these bug bites around it. It's also worth noting that the doctor that noticed this was a woman named Jennifer Snow, which is kind of like Jon Snow, just saying, but Dr. Jennifer yeah. Snow. And the infectious disease doctor in the hospital was a woman named Dr. Wendy Drummond. So between the two badass women, they saved this little girl's life. But anyway, in this doctor house meets Sleeping Beauty or Snow White moment, the doctor... <laughs> I, mean, I guess she's I guess she's unconscious. So it's like doctor house meets Sleeping Beauty meets Snow White. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Okay. Good call. With maybe like a hint of Bambi. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> No, you're right. So the doctor looks at the leg and she talks to the parents. She's like, where did she get all of these bug bites? Could it be a source of whatever this mysterious disease is? And the parents are like, well, like a week ago we went camping. There are lots of bugs there. And then all of a sudden they realize when they were camping, little Sierra, the seven-year-old girl, saw a dead squirrel in the campsite. And she was like, so devastated and heartbroken and she wanted to give it a burial because she was obviously a sweet baby angel child who probably had just seen snow white <laughs> and her parents obviously were like don't touch the dead squirrel and she was like but i feel really bad for this dead squirrel and i really think it deserves to be buried it just shouldn't just be here so she picked it up and wrapped it in her sweatshirt and tied her sweatshirt around her waist and carried it back with her to campsite where she then gave it a burial Aww. so that it could rest in peace Cutie. again because she is a sweet baby angel child. But like, obviously this dead squirrel was infested <laughs> with fleas <laughs> and the fleas were carrying the plague virus and they all bit her 
And then five days later, she fell really ill. I mean, it came from a good place. And because of the badass doctors at the hospital, (laughs) it was okay in the end. Yes. So the good news is that with this information, Dr. Drummond and Dr. Snow were super on the ball. And like, I read this hilarious article where she described it as like, when a horse is limping, you always have to check the horse. But sometimes it's not even a horse at all. It's a zebra. <laughs> what? She like check the oh, hoof of the, the horse diagnosis. if the horse is limping. Okay. But sometimes it's just not even a horse. They were on the ball. They identified plague, which is crazy. Like who thinks of that? And then she got the treatment and she slowly made a full recovery. And per this very sweet article, the hospital staff all loved her. And they felt really bad that this poor girl got the literal plague. <laughs> so they all chipped in and they bought her a drum kit. That she had always wanted, which is irrelevant, but adorable. Oh, I love that. So, okay, obviously it does not always work this way. It is only effective when you get the right kind of medical attention and a good diagnostician, especially if you're somewhere in North America where it's so rare. Like, I guess in many ways it's promising that the plague was so rare they didn't even think to look for it, I guess. But again, that's obviously not true in a place like Madagascar or the DRC. Either way... It's one of those diseases, maybe all diseases, where the more disenfranchised you are, the worse it is going to affect you. But just wanted to bring a little bit of an uplifting story for a change into the new year. And I thought Sierra was adorable. So there you have it. Sierra is definitely one of the hoorays. And I'm really glad we could end this on a chipper note for once because... (laughs) you know (laughs) tends to be a downer but we have a survivor story so and we managed to uh mention disney films more than once good point Mm -hmm. yes oh well give me give me a hooray hooray me hooray you okay um oh the decameron yes i wanted to talk about the decameron because i'm rereading it for the first time since i was a wee english lit major for one year at the beginning of mcgill so it's a novel by Boccaccio that came out in the 14th century, only a few years after the Black Death ended. And it is about a group of young people from Florence who go to someone's country estate to escape the plague. And they spend, I think it's 10 days on that estate having a storytelling competition. It's a frame narrative. So it's them and how they interact with each other, what they think about the plague, Uh, how they plan to structure their time and then you get each of their stories i really like it that sounds cute it is cute a nice book is always a good hooray it is a good hooray yeah so this is obviously i feel like for everyone been a bit of a weird christmas time yep but i feel like it's and i've definitely been like flustered like it's been a week but i my hooray is just that i have like a couple days where everything is calming down and i'm catching up on all the work i need to finish and i have like things lined up for the new year and I feel like I can enter it like not obviously I wish that like January 1st would come and everything would be like great logically I know that's not gonna happen (laughs) but it is nice feeling to be like okay I felt like 2020 was a bit of stasis and I'm entering 2021 being like I've got a bit of a plan like I have a couple things that I'm ready to do that are good And this is one of them, this podcast, 
I think that's just a general mm. overall hooray feeling. Like I'm feeling very grateful for all of it. Actually, one big hooray is that we've managed to keep the project going. That's huge. That's a huge hooray. That's huge. Remember when we started in April and we were like, oh yeah, just for lockdown, it'll be fine. Once it's over, yeah. we'll see. And here we are still doing it, still powering through. Yeah, and loving it. It's a good exercise and it's a good conversation. And it's a reason to hang out with you yeah, <laughs> on a regular that. basis. <laughs> but you know what? It does always make me feel like I'm working. Like once I... Once I finish prepping the episode and we record, after that I feel like pumped up to do my own work. So it is really good for me, actually, and my whole routine. Like, so I'm getting a lot out of it. Me too. And it's, yeah, it's good. It's thought experiment. Oh, I have one, one more hooray for the two of us, which is that for Christmas, one of my oldest and dearest friends, Maddie, sent me a tote bag with our logo on it. So it's officially our very first piece of merch and it looks <laughs> Fabulous. So shout out to that. It looks so good on the tote bag and it's really good. I'm going to get myself one too because it's just great. So, you know, DM us if you want merch. (laughs) (laughs) One last hooray. Made it through Christmas. I was stuck in Oxford. I obviously couldn't go home to Toronto or Montreal and I'm probably not going to be able to do that until next August. So I was quite worried. But I went on a lovely Christmas walk and we have a Christmas tree that's all nice and decorated and I have my own personal Christmas tree and we've just made the whole thing really festive, even if it is like an expat's Christmas. That's lovely. Should we wrap it up? Yeah, I think that's great. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Miss you. (laughs) Miss you. Thank you for listening to In Sickness. Researched and hosted by Angeliki and Maya. Intro track and logo by Adrian Morningstar. Sound editing by Maya.